Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. We're here to study the book of Matthew chapter five is where we are. And we're almost done with the chapter. Uh, chapter five, six and seven of Matthew, as we've said, is the Sermon on the Mount. Considered the greatest speech, the greatest sermon, the greatest talk uh, ever given anywhere. And Jesus gives this sermon as a sort of a introduction to his whole ministry that's just starting in the book of Matthew. Um, there's all kinds of wisdom here. We won't review the whole chapter, but it starts with the Beatitudes, and then he's correcting all kinds of uh, false behavior, I'll, I'll call it, uh, where people are acting as if they believe and that they want to please God, but they're doing it for other reasons. So he, Jesus, has the audacity to take the Old Testament and say, you have heard that it was said, meaning God said it. And then he says, but I say to you. It's an amazing thing. If he wasn't God, that would be blasphemy. But he is, and uh, so we get some incredible wisdom here. We left off at verse 43. I'll just back up to 38 just to review where we've been. Um, a lot of practical stuff here. So I know that you're awake. Say amen. Amen. Good one. And those of you on Zoom, just wave or hold up an amen sign. Beautiful. Thank you. Verse 38 of chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not show opposition or resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other toward him also. Instead of retaliating, instead of revenge, instead of holding a grudge, he's saying, let these kinds of things go. We talked about the fact that for Jews, it's not the slap on the cheek. Just a right-handed person slapping another person on the right cheek, you couldn't do it this way. You have to do it this way, a backhander. What does that matter, you say? We said last week that the Jews considered that a much greater insult than an open-hand slap. I'm not sure why, but a backhand thing. So it's a great insult more than it is the slap on the face. He's saying, take it. Our example, of course, for all these things is Jesus, who was greatly uh, persecuted and mocked and spit upon and beaten and never retaliated. Verse 40, and anyone who wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Tunic is the inner garment, like a long t-shirt. Cloak, outer garment, um, considered off limits to be taken in a lawsuit. He's saying, if they want to take it, let them take it. It's only stuff. Uh, whoever forces you, verse 41, to go one mile, go with them too. Um, that's talking about the Romans had a law that they could force any citizen under their jurisdiction, which for them it would be the Jews, under the thumb of the Roman government. Any Roman soldier could come up to any Jewish citizen and say, hey, carry my pack, carry my suitcase, carry my bag for one mile was the maximum. Jesus says, don't just do what is the minimum go an extra mile. All of these things, if we do them, I think that the response of people would be amazement. And they would say about Christians, boy, they're, they're sure different. That's what we want, isn't it? Um, verse 42, give to him who asks of you and don't turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. 
We talked about that and being generous and open-handed with our money, our time, talent, and treasure so God can take out or put in whatever he wants. We said that this is not a carte blanche giving to everybody and anybody. Um, well, we, we didn't talk a lot about it, so that's where we left off, come to think of it. So let's dive in, shall we? Uh, Deuteronomy 15 talks about the poor, Old Testament. And it says, do not harden your heart against poor people, nor shut your hand from your poor brother. Open your hand wide to him. Be willing to lend him sufficient for his need. Your heart should not be grieved when you give, because the Lord will bless you in all your works. So I want you to notice, I want you to notice the word need. Why is that important? Because if you go to downtown Fresno, I'll bet you somebody will ask you for spare change. Could you give me some money? And if you figure out that the guy is going to use the money for drugs or for alcohol, then you're feeding that habit and you're helping him dig his own grave. That would be a good example where you wouldn't give money to a person like that. Could you buy him lunch and talk to him about the gospel? Sure. But we, we have to be wise about giving, but certainly we, our example again is Jesus Christ who gives abundantly. Um, we're going to talk more about that in a second. Um, but there's a blessing when we give. If we understand that everything we have has been given to us, it becomes easier to give away than if we feel like we earned it, we deserve it, it's mine, get away from my pile sort of thing. Um, this is a strong ethic that the world doesn't have. We ought to be, as we said, different. So uh, there's another thing about giving I want to throw out to you. Second Thessalonians 3, you don't need to turn there. But it says, speaking about Christians at least, if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. Meaning, We've got a poor person in our church, let's say, asking for money, but he's able-bodied. He's able to work. You offer him a job. He doesn't want to work. He wants the free money. That verse says, if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. It doesn't say if a man cannot work, a physical ailment, he's too aged, whatever the case may be. But if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. Uh, we don't want to encourage laziness, in other words. Um, let's see. Yeah, we already talked about that. Jesus, um, let's go there real fast. I'll try to do this quickly. Go to Isaiah chapter 50. So roughly the middle of your Bible is Psalms, Isaiah, somewhere in there. Isaiah's after Psalms. So go to Isaiah 50. We're only going to be here a second, but I just want to show you something kind of interesting. We all know Isaiah 53 is about Jesus pretty much the whole chapter. But Isaiah chapter 50 is an interesting verse. Most scholars think, uh, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, most scholars think it's about Jesus. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard, I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Jesus literally did what we just talked about, turning the other cheek to the point of not only being slapped and, and abused and mocked and uh, insulted, 
but his beard being pulled out. By the way, at no extra charge, I'll throw this in. There's a few scholars that think that in the course of this um, arrest for Jesus, the beating, of course, he would be greatly disfigured from the beatings and the whipping and what have you. But some scholars believe this is literally true, that they plucked out his beard. If you've ever known anyone that they had a beard, as long as you knew them, and then they showed up with their beard shaven, they look like a totally different person sometimes. Is Some scholars think that's why after the resurrection, there's people that don't recognize Jesus right away. In Luke 24, when that happens though, I think it's 24, it says in that scripture that their eyes were prevented from recognizing him, meaning God didn't want them to recognize him just yet. He had lessons to teach them. He gives them a little Bible study, if you remember the passage. But Jesus literally turned his cheek. Um, as well, Jesus, remember that thing about if they want to take your uh, tunic, let them have your cloak as well. We said last week, Jesus, right before the crucifixion, the soldiers take away not only his tunic, but his cloak, which is seamless, and they gamble for it. Jesus is our example for both of these things. So back to 42, uh, um, give to him who asks if you don't turn away from him, wants to borrow from you. You've heard it was said, verse 43, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, just to clarify there's nowhere in the old testament that says hate your enemy nowhere it does say love your neighbor uh and and talks about love but nowhere in the old testament does it say hate your enemy what the jews did in their segregation of themselves as god wanted is they started to look down upon all gentiles and and interpreted that verse to mean love your neighbor other jews and they kind of inserted the idea it's okay to hate the gentiles they're pagans they're dirty they don't know god it's okay to hate them god doesn't want you to hate anybody we're going to find out so verse 40 Three, you've heard, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, here he goes again, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may prove yourselves to be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Well, if you, uh, we said last week, there are books written called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. This is one of them. If you haven't had a real down and dirty enemy in your life, you can't relate to this. But if you have, and someone has purposely hurt you and abused you, whatever the case may be, ripped you off, um, this verse is saying we have to love. This is a command from our master. Lord means boss, master, saying love your enemies. Does that mean you have to like them? Believe it or not, the answer is no. Love, we've said in this Bible study, is not an emotion. If it was, you couldn't command people to feel something emotion-wise. Be sad, be happy. You can't command emotions. Well, then what is love? It's a verb. It's just something you do. 
Love your enemies means do good to them. It's the opposite of what mankind has naturally built in because we're sinners. What do we want to do to our enemies? Get even, right? Hurt them worse. Love your enemies. What would the world look like if people loved their enemies? I have a feeling a lot of conflicts would dissolve away. It's hard to still be an enemy towards someone when they're being loving toward you. This is definitely a higher um, moral ground than anything in the rest of the world religions. What does Jesus do after being whipped and beaten and hanging on the cross? In the Gospel of Luke, it's interesting, the verb tense. I don't want to get too in the weeds with this, but he says, if you read it, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But if you read the whole sentence, the whole verse, it says in the Greek, literally, he kept on saying. It's continuing action, through, which implies through the whipping and the beating and the mocking and the insults and the nailing. And while he was on the cross, he kept saying, Father, forgive them. Loving your enemies. Uh, pretty amazing thing. Uh in Luke 10, Jesus talks about neighbors. Do you remember? And one of the Pharisees says to him, but who is my neighbor? You remember that? Because we like to think it means just our inner circle. He's about to say, if you love only the people that love you, what good is that? How different are you? The answer is everybody on planet earth is your neighbor, biblically speaking. Everybody. Because we've just read, love your enemies. The weird thing about love is if you hate someone and they're your enemy and you obey this and you do good to them, the longer you do, even if you're not feeling love toward them, eventually the feeling, the emotion follows and you start to feel love for them and maybe them for you as well. Um, the Jews did not consider the Gentiles their neighbors, as we said. Um, we have to love people, bless them, do good, pray for them. Respond in love, not vengeance. We've read it Old Testament and New. Romans says it as well. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Let him do it. Um, okay. I want to talk about common grace and special grace. Um, because it's in this verse. Let me read the verse again. Um, let's see. So love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, we're not there yet. Let's go. Verse 45. So that you may prove yourselves to be sons of your father who's in heaven. He's saying sons naturally have a resemblance and daughters to their father, right? There should be a family resemblance. By loving enemies, we are proving ourselves. We are looking like and acting like what God does to people. And he's going to explain, for, I'm still in the middle of 45, he causes his son, S-U-N, isn't that interesting? You know the son? It's his. I love that. It's really his universe, right? And his dirt and his cows and rocks and mountains. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This verse is talking about what the biblical scholars call common grace. God gives good things, listen, to everyone. 
because the sunshine benefits us, doesn't it? It also benefits a farmer that's an atheist or a Hindu or a Buddhist or a whatever else you want to say, a Mormon. The same thing with the rain. These sorts of things are common grace, uh, different from special or saving grace, which only believers receive. We'll get to that in a second. But to God gives this common grace to his kids and to unbelievers and to his enemies, Satanists, everybody has the sunshine, the rain. They have life in their body, any talent or good that happens to them. They have food, they have water, life, uh, common grace. God gives with no distinction. He's comparing us to them saying, give a little common grace to people that aren't necessarily your friends, even if they're your enemies. But special grace or saving grace is only for those who believe. Once we are children of his and we're saved, our sins are forgiven, we have things that are given to us that are not given to unbelievers. The Holy Spirit, salvation, eternal life, sanctification, where he changes us slowly over time into what he wants us to be, um, heaven eventually and eternal life. Unbelievers don't have that. So two different kinds of grace. But the surest way to kill bitterness you have against somebody is pray for them and do good for them. Is this hard to do? Unbelievably. If you've ever, let me see your hands. How many have had to really pray for or do something good to or for an enemy? Yeah, we have. It's not easy. Uh, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, when we understand how much we've been given vertically, love, forgiveness, grace, peace, mercy, it's easier to hand it out horizontally, regardless of how the person treats you. Okay. Four, verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors, do they not do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles, do they not do the same? Okay, what's he talking about here? Most people do the first part of verse, what was that, 46. We love those who love us. It's kind of an unwritten law. One hand washes the other. You be good to me, I'll be good to you. But don't cross me, don't become my enemy or look out, right? That's not Christian. He's saying we are called to a much higher standard. We're living just like pagans. I have a friend that's in, a couple friends that are complete atheists. No God, Bible, Jesus, nothing. They love their children. One of them doesn't have a kid, but the other one has a child. Loves his child, loves his wife, loves his friends. That's pretty normal. He's saying we have to go above and beyond everything else so that Christianity stands out as being unique and different in the best possible way. We go the extra mile. We give when we're asked. We turn the other cheek. We love even our enemies. Uh, again, not, not easy. So we have to go that extra level. He says in 46, even the tax collectors, which considered, considered the biggest sinners because they were Jews who were traitors and were working for the Romans, taking taxes and keeping a bunch for themselves from their Jewish brethren. Keep in mind, who wrote this book? Matthew, who's a, was a tax collector. Pretty amazing. Um, they do the same thing. 
If you greet only your brothers and sisters, in other words, people tend to be have blinders on, right? I'm just going to say hello to people that I know kind of thing. We live here in Oakhurst. Those of you that are on Zoom that don't know, this is a small town in the Sierras. And I, on our street, I walk almost every day. We, everybody waves to everybody on our street. Does that happen on your street? Some of you? Cars and how you doing? I don't even know the people. How you doing? I forget this and we go to Santa Cruz or to Monterey and I wave to people and they look at me like, are you crazy? What do you want? You know, are you a Mooney or something? If you greet only those that, uh, that are your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? The, the key word there is more. Christians are supposed to do more, bless more, love more, give more, because we've been given more. Don't the Gentiles do the same, 47. Okay, there it is in verse 48. We've been leading up to this. Therefore, do your best. No? That's not what it says. Do as good as you can. Be as good as you can. God grades on a curve. A B minus and above is pretty good. Is that what it says? Therefore, you shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, the word perfect can in some contexts mean mature or complete. It means that in the book of James. Here, every scholar I could get my hands on says, here it doesn't mean that. It means perfect. Remember that he's writing to Jews, most of whom believe, well, we have the Old Testament law, and we're living up to it. That's our hope of salvation. We're trying to keep the Ten Commandments, all the other laws. We're not eating non-kosher food. We're being good Jews. We can live up. God understands when you make a mistake. This verse says, if you want to achieve salvation by obeying the law, you better go for it all the way and be perfect. So you, you say, well, is this hyperbole? I don't think it is. For someone that says, I'm going to get to heaven by just obeying God's commands, how perfect does he have to be? The book of James says that if you sin in one area of the law, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. It's still a broken window, whether it's a little crack or you hit it with a bat. The point is, the law is not the way you come to God because you can't be perfect. Let me use another word. Therefore, be sinless, righteous. Any self-respecting Jew who's listening would have to think, come on, that's impossible. To which Jesus would say, that's what I've been trying to show you. Remember earlier in this chapter, he said, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you hate your brother or you call your brother, you fool, you're just as guilty. You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. These are all commandments that they're thinking, I'm good on these. And he says, if you've even looked at somebody to lust for them, You've already committed the act in your mind. He's showing them that the law was never intended, listen, to bring people to salvation. It was intended to be an x-ray. When you go to the doctor's office, no one has ever been cured by an x-ray, ever. Do you eat the x-ray? Do you rub it on your skin? All an x-ray does is it shows you here is the problem. That's what the law is. That's what the book of Galatians and Romans is all about. 
the law, shows us, Jesus is showing us in chapter 5, 6, and 7, you can't get there obeying God because you'll never obey him perfectly. You and I need a savior. Someone that lived the perfect life in our place without sinning, Jesus. Somebody who died in our place, taking the punishment we deserve, Jesus who fully fulfilled the law. Earlier in this chapter, he says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to completely fulfill it. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law so that you and I don't have to to try to earn salvation. Oh, comes the question. Paul says it in the book of Romans. Shall we sin then all the more that grace may abound? May it never be. We, this is still God's perfect standard, and we ought to try to shoot for it as much as we can. We will never be perfect. Thanks be to God, John 1, 1 John 1, 9 is still in the Bible. I looked today. Not really, but I know it's there. It says if, if we if sin, we must confess our sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus spends three chapters, I've said this over and over, but some of you are here for the first time. In the book of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. What he's doing is trying to show the Jews you can never fulfill God's law enough to have salvation. You can't live the law perfectly. We ought to try as hard as we can, but we need a Savior. That's the whole point. That's why verse 48 says, be perfect. Now, then there's people that say, well, how perfect do you have to be? Now we're going to get the lawyers involved, right? Splitting hairs. But he answers the question. Look at the second half of the verse. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let me ask you a question. How perfect is God? Completely, right? He's saying, you want the standard? Does God grade 70 and above is an okay? 90 and above? Oh, no, it's 100%. It should make the Jews realize we need a Savior then. We need some other way. He presents himself in this book as that King and Savior. It's a beautiful thing. How perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. The only way to do it is if we have a Savior who gives us, book of Ezekiel and elsewhere, a new heart. And he puts his spirit within us. Otherwise, we have no hope of fulfilling the law. We're just fooling ourselves. Um, let's go to Romans chapter 3, because some of you are going to be falling asleep if we don't keep turning pages. Romans, so to the right, about six books, I'm going to guess. Romans 3. Mm -hmm. And do we want verse 21? We do. Romans chapter 3. Um, well, I can't resist reading verse 10, though. Romans 3.10. He's reading from the Old Testament, Paul is. Romans 3.10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Did you hear that? The Pharisees thought they were righteous. Some Jews thought they were living the law. They were being righteous. What does that say? There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. Look at the next part of verse 11. There's no one who seeks God. No one. Meaning, on their own, there's no one that seeks God. Yes, I know there's spiritual seekers who are out there and New Age people and other people, and 
They know there's a vacuum in their lives spiritually, and they're seeking for something, but no one on their own seeks God. That's why God, in the relationship you have with him, he made the first move. John 6.44 says, no one can come to me, Jesus talking, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And whether you know it or not, when you came to him, he was drawing you. It felt like you were coming on your own. You're wrong. Okay, Romans 3. Uh, we digress. 21. Now, but now. Uh, yeah, we don't want to go back there. No, verse 21. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, all those Old Testament commandments, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, notice the next word, from God. Verse 22. Comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's the answer to the question, be perfect. How many have done it? One, Jesus. Who else? Nobody. You have to have faith in the Savior. Verse 24, I'm still in Romans 3, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. He was a sacrifice for atonement, and it goes on. Chapter 3 of Romans is amazing. Okay, go back to Matthew, if you will. So if you want to do it on your own, he says, be perfect just like God's perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Uh, we already talked about that. All right, we're going to dive into chapter six now. And um, chapter six is going to correct um, some misconceptions about righteous conduct. What we're going to see is that the Jewish leaders, were con the Pharisees, the Sadducees, were considered the holiest dudes in Israel. Okay, people looked up to them. Oh, they're so holy. In chapter five, do you remember? He said, unless your righteousness exceeds or goes beyond what they do, you'll never make it. Do you remember that? It turns out he's going to show us that these guys were a bunch of phony Hollywood actors who were all for show on the outside. Oh, I'm so holy. And inside, and they talk that way too. And inside, they were a bunch of phonies. Jesus calls them whitewashed sepulchers or graves. When people were coming into Jerusalem for feasts, Passover and what have you, if you're coming from a foreign country, you might not know there's graves here, be careful. So they would whitewash all the graves and make them very white so you'd know stay away from the grave because you're unclean if you touch a grave or a dead body. Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed sepulchers. You're all clean on the outside. It's all for show. Inside, you're rotting, basically. So that's what he's going to do in this chapter. And he's going to talk about the fact that it's not the act, what you do. It's the motivation, the reason in your heart why you do it. Um, so he's going to talk about giving. He's going to talk about uh charitable deeds. He's going to talk about fasting and prayer uh, and that Christianity has to be real and sincere. Let's dive in, shall we? Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. You guys on Zoom, awake and, and watching. All right, good. Verse six, be careful. 
not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. There are people, and the Pharisees you're going to see were examples, that do righteous stuff and they wait till there's nobody around. I don't want to do it now. And then a bunch, here comes a bunch of people, and I'm now I'm starting to paint the church building. What are you doing, Joe? Oh, I'm just painting the building just to do something to give back to God. I bought the paint myself, too. I just like to do these righteous acts and have nobody know. He waited until people were there that could see him. What a phony. He's saying, if you do righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. You know what that is? Motive. The idea of painting the church is a great way to help the church. The way to do it is don't tell anybody. Wait till nobody's here and the parking lot's empty and your car's the only one out there. Then go paint. And when people say, somebody painted the church, don't say, me, me, me. Keep your mouth shut. That's what he's going to say. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, no reward from your Father in heaven. He's not denying that there might be righteousness in the act itself, because it's a good thing to paint the church. He's denying that there's any reward because God looks at the heart. He knows why I'm painting the church, so everybody will see me and think what a holy giving person he is. Look at verse 2. Example, giving. By the way, um, righteousness in verse 1, some translations have the word charitable deeds. Anybody have that? No? One or two. Charitable deeds. Their word for charitable deeds is the same as the word for righteousness, by the way, in in Greek. So he's talking about sincerity. Um, Keep your finger here. Go back to Romans, uh, not to Romans, to Matthew 5. You go, we just left there. Yeah, I know, but I want to show you something. Go back to Matthew chapter 5 and go to verse 16. Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that you get the credit. Is that what it says? No. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. If they see your good deeds, they know he's not doing it for his own self-aggrandizement or the glory, or so we'll think he's holy. He's doing it for God's glory. There's a certain way to do it. He's going to explain that now. Verse 2, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward in full. So here's some examples. Um, I wrote in my notes here, blowing your own horn. You ever heard that? He's always blowing his own horn. Um, at feasts, when sometimes when people gave um, at the temple, there were those that brought little trumpets, okay? If you're Alan's here tonight and he's a Beatle fan like me, in the Beatles song, Penny Lane, there's an instrument solo. And it's a piccolo trumpet, a tiny little trumpet, very high. They would have a little piccolo type trumpet. And to get attention so everybody would notice, I'm going to donate now. 
and remember the what was the margarine ad where the never mind uh yeah something anyway they would blow a trumpet so they would get attention and then give to god they're doing it for the applause of men christians are supposed to live their lives for the applause of one god that's it so when look at verse two again what's the second word if or when so when you give to the needy not if when that's all i'll say about that everyone in this room i'm guessing has more than they need and these people that we're talking about in verse two are what needy right so when you give to the needy we already talked about the parameters of giving do not announce it with trumpets you say well nobody blows a trumpet nowadays listen we all have our little trumpets don't we ways of letting other people know that you know i'm donating a bunch of my time and it's better that we not say it to other people because the temptation is to take the praise that is so nice that you're doing that jeff you painted that whole wall of the church it's tempting to enjoy that and say Look, i'm doing it for god's glory and don't mention it to anybody kind of thing when you give to the needy don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites that's a word for actor literally an actor playing a role hypocrites one thing on the outside something else on the inside notice they do it in the synagogues and on the streets a synagogue is like a local temple it's not the temple in Israel, but for Jews that lived far enough in the temple, they couldn't come every week. They would go to the local synagogue, Jewish place of worship. But for major events, they would come to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Now, the word for streets is, see the word on the streets? Do you see that there? There's different words for streets, just as we have road, street, boulevard, highway, right? This is a word for not only the widest possible type of street, you and I might call it an expressway, a highway, or a boulevard kind of thing, but it means at a street like that on the corner. Because now we got two streets coming, meaning what? For the guy that wants to show everybody how righteous he is, it's a bigger audience. And so they, the Pharisees, the hypocrites, would on the streets announce their giving to the needy with trumpets. They would do righteous things. We're about to see them praying in those sorts of corners to be seen for the glory of men. Don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others that's a motivation for some people they want that honor that recognition that pat on the back that sometimes people do that so i think that they can feel that they're better than you right a little holier kind of thing truly i tell you verse this is the end of verse two this is interesting they have their reward in full you say what does that mean is it from god no look at verse one 
You will have no reward from your Father in heaven. See that in verse 1? Practicing righteousness to be seen by other people. So they have their reward in full. What is their reward? The applause of men. What a holy guy you are, Jedediah, or whatever the guy's name is. That's a reward. It's a temporary reward. It fades quickly. Is it better to get that, which is immediate gratification, or is it better to get an eternal reward in heaven that lasts, wait for it, forever? Much better and much more sincere. It's interesting that the person giving to the poor, what's their motivation? To be seen by others, right? So let me ask you this. Are they doing it for A, God's glory? No, that's the furthest thing from their mind, even though they would, they would act that way. Are they even doing it to help the poor people? Actually, no. It's just a vehicle through which they can get glory for themselves. Let's take a collection. No, I'm just kidding. When you give to the needy, we covered that. They've received the reward in full, verse 3. But when you give to the needy, not if, do not, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Okay, now this is hyperbole, right? Because first of all, your left hand and your right hand, they don't know anything, right? And it would be impossible to give with your left hand and have your right hand not know. What's he saying? He's saying, don't announce it. Keep it to yourself even to the point that one hand is doing it and the other hand doesn't know. How do you mean? Listen, to applaud, you need two hands. Yay for me, with just one hand, one, the sound of one hand clapping, right? Um, we digress. Uh, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing so that, verse four, your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will, re will reward you. Now, one danger is giving and doing righteous acts in, as a means of getting God to owe me. That's why I'm painting the church, so that you will owe me. Forget that. You could paint every church in America and give all your money away and your kidneys away. Well, one of them anyway. And God would not owe you. We owe God immensely for everything. Let's take our two minute break right now because it's time for that. And make sure you grab a treat back there and make sure you say hello to someone that you don't know. Those of you on Zoom, I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. All right, we're back. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. Those of you that are here, munching out, find your seats. Thank you for the treats. I know the Pascucci's brought some. Who else did? Somebody else? Looks pretty good. Give to the needy. No, just... All right, we're in chapter 6 of Matthew. And uh, so we're reading about hypocrites, actors, people that act righteous when they're not. And God hates this. Listen, if you remember nothing else tonight, remember this. God hates fake religion more than just about any other sin. I'm not saying he doesn't hate murder and all the other ripoffs and lies and all of that. 
Who does Jesus come down on the hardest in the Gospels? It's not the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the thieves. It's the phony religionists. It's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the people that are faking a relationship with God. God sees right through them, and they've forgotten that. Go back to chapter 6 with me. Um, So that your giving may be in secret. Now, I've heard people read this verse and think, wrongly, by the way, that if you give to somebody and other people find out about it, it's all ruined. Oh, now it's not in secret. She knows that I gave money to the... That's not what it means. It means don't do it to be seen by men. Don't announce it, your good works. Announce the good works that God has done instead. Your giving will be in secret. I'm in verse 4 of chapter 6. Then your father who sees what is done in secret. By the way, did it ever... um, I remember when I was really getting serious about coming to Christ. The thing that... Um, really affected me was that God sees everything. I can hide stuff from you or him or my parents, and I did. I can't hide from God. But beyond that, God even hears my thoughts. Oh, no. We used to joke that imagine if they could put something around your neck that was a big speaker right here, and everything you thought would come out nice and loud for everyone to hear, and you try to cover the thing up, but you couldn't do it. God hears our thoughts. Oh, man. And he loves us anyway. Pretty amazing. God, who sees what's done in secret, will reward you. Might that reward be heaven, eternal life, something spiritual? Yes, Might it not be something material, physical, money, a job? It might not. Might it be those things? It could be. God knows how to give give perfect gifts, though. Amen? Okay, from giving, we're moving on to praying now. Verse 5. And if you pray, no. When you pray. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. What's the motivation? To be seen by others. Well, surely the motivation is prayer to God. Not really. That's their motivation to be seen by others so they the others will have the impression what holy dudes these guys are. Don't, they love to pray standing. First of all, there are three postures for prayer in the Bible. And standing is the normal one. Sitting is also in the Bible, prayer seated. Prayer in the Bible, kneeling is also done. But the standard position for prayer was standing up. So that's not what he's impugning or making the bad thing here. Um, They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. Same word, by the way, the widest streets at the corner so the more people can see me and they would pray with their hands up and so that people would think, look how holy that guy is to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, 
They've received their reward in full. There it is again. What's the reward? The applause of men, having other people think more highly of them. By the way, hopefully you are mature enough as a Christian that if you see somebody doing this sort of thing, wouldn't you see right through it? I, they wouldn't get any applause from me for trying to act all holy. I mean, I guess, suppose we have to give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he's really just praying back there loudly with his hands up so everybody can see him because he's really, you know, emphatically and fervently praying to God, but it's probably more likely he's doing it to be seen. Prayer, um, and we didn't do a lot of this as a Catholic growing up, but prayer, I have learned, can be public and out loud, right? You heard me pray earlier. Nothing wrong with that. That's not what he's saying here. But most prayer is what I call spiritual breathing, where you are literally going through your day, talking to God all through the day, thanking him for things, praising him for the, asking him things, constant communication with your heavenly father. But most prayer is also private and not showy and loud right? Let's go back to this portion of chapter six. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't pray that way. The actors, they're standing in the synagogues and street corners, their motivation to be seen by others. They have a reward already. Verse four, but when you pray, I'm sorry, verse six, but when you pray, go into your room or the inner room of your house. The, the impression is away from the windows even, because somebody might walk by and go, look, Joe's praying. What a holy guy. Go where no one can see you. Go in a private place. Verse 6, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. He is, isn't he? He's unseen. I've never seen God, but I've never seen the wind either. Neither of you. No, I've seen the wind. No, you haven't. Wind is moving air. Air is invisible. Even air that's moving is invisible. But you've seen the trees and the grass blow. You've seen people's hair blow. You've seen the effect of the wind, but you haven't seen the wind. In the same way, I haven't seen God, but I've seen in your lives, in mine, in the world, the effect of God. I don't need to see him. I know. Just like the wind I know is real, I can feel it. Same for him. Okay. Close the door, pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret. There it is again. Don't worry that God didn't see you because it wasn't loud and on a street corner. God sees what's done in secret toward the end of verse six. Will reward you. The promise of reward, do you see it? Comes again and again and again. And again, when the motivation is for his glory and it's sincere and from the heart, not it's not all about I want people to know what a holy dude I am. Verse 7. Hold on, I'm on the wrong page of my notes. Talk amongst yourselves. Okay. <laughs> Verse 7. Uh, by the way, the Jews had appointed times for prayer. 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. We already talked about the standing being the normal posture. Uh, if you're praying to God and you're not really talking to him, you're really praying to God to get people's attention, to get their accolades. I thought about this from God's angle, looking down at that. 
what an insult to him that we might use prayer or even obedience and righteous acts all for the self-aggrandizement for it's all about me kind of thing. Verse seven, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans or endless repetitions, some translations have, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Okay, what's going on here? Pagans pray in those days, and we'll get some examples in a second, long, wordy prayers. Keep in mind, they are actually praying to, listen, nobody. Because the other gods don't exist. How many real gods are there? One. Old Testament, again and again, God says, I am the Lord. I know of no other God. There's no other God but me. Beside me is no other God. Uh, it's in Isaiah right around 45, 46, 44, right in there. Um, in 1 Kings 18, the prophets of Baal cried out for half a day to Baal. In Acts 19, the mob in Ephesus shouted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That was a pagan god. And they shouted it for two hours straight. There's all kinds of, in Hinduism, deep meditation where you're given a mantra, Om, or some name of some pagan Hindu god, and what you do is say it over and over, meaningless repetition, and over and over. If you know anything about psychology, you know that when that kind of thing happens long enough, you go into an altered state of consciousness where I believe the walls come down spiritually and you're opening yourself up to demonic oppression or even possession in some cases. Aren't you glad God's not impressed with how many words was his prayer? God's not impressed that he used a bunch of six syllable words. Wow, that was great. God's not impressed that Oh, Lord, we speak forth to you. You are righteous and holy. And God's like, go and get to the point. What do you need? You're buttering me up for something. Not that those things aren't true. I'm just saying it can be done that way, can't it? Meaningless repetition. Now at the risk of stepping on some toes. Well, no, let me give you a few other examples, first of all. Um, I'm chickening out. No, I, I will do it, I promise. Um, is it okay to pray the same prayer more than once? Of course. Paul prayed three times about the thorn in the flesh. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed three times, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. Three times. That's totally fine. He meant it for God that way. It wasn't meaningless repetition. Um, after a Muslim funeral, Often the attendees say Allah el Allah, which means Allah is God. And they say it, wait for it, 3,000 times. Is God up there with a little clicker? 1101, 1102, 1103. Now I'm going to step on some toes. You, most of you know that I was raised in the Catholic Church. Okay. I believe the Catholics have the same Jesus. Mostly they have the same Bible. They've added a bunch of other stuff. Okay. But one thing that they do is they use prayer as penance. 
standard procedure is you go to uh, you go to um, confession. Before you're going to have communion Sunday morning, it's Saturday, you get your tail down there and you go to confession, mister. So my brother and I would go to confession. The Catholic Church would have little booths, okay? A center booth where the priest is and a booth on either side. And he would open the little window and then here's the, I'm the priest, right? And here's the little confessor guy, the kid or the adult. And you're supposed to tell the priest what you did wrong, your sins. Bless me, Father, for I've sinned. I lied 14 times. I stole seven things. I yelled at my brother. I hit my sister, whatever it may be. Okay, I stole, a, a robbed a liquor store, whatever, however bad you are, you're supposed to tell the priest. We used to wonder, how are we supposed to remember all the things we did wrong? Right? It's been, you also had to tell them it's been six weeks since my last confession. I, have, I felt like saying, I have no idea how many things I did wrong. It's a lot. Okay. So if this guy lied twice and lusted once and stole one thing, the, for your penance, my child, say three Hail Marys and two Our Fathers. So you go up to the altar and you say the prayers rapid fire. You're not even thinking about the words, Our Father, Our Father, Our Father. A Catholic can get the prayers down. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. By the way, the Hail Mary is not in the Bible. The first half is scriptural. The second half is not. No one is supposed to be praying to a dead person. And Mary, although she is greatly favored, is not hearing prayers. There's prayers to God the Father, prayers to God the Son, prayers to the Holy Spirit. Nobody in the Bible prays to anybody else. Okay, so don't pray to Mary or anybody else. Pray to God. Number two, that's meaningless repetition. But the guy on this side of the confessional who robbed a liquor store and, and you know, beat up his parents, and he's going to get 36 Our Fathers and 19 Hail Marys or whatever. So you go, Our Father, and you're trying to keep track, right? As if God's in heaven going, that's 14, 15. Listen, prayer is communication with your Father, your Heavenly Father. We'll get into the elements of prayer probably more next week than this week, but I'm doing the best I can. Um, Buddhists put written prayers on wheels and they turn it with a crank or by the wind that can be turned. And supposedly as the prayer comes to the top, it's heard every time by some deity. There are 330 million gods in Hinduism. Yes, you heard right. 330 million gods in Hinduism. Sufi Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, and some Catholics pray repetitively. The rosary is a repetitive prayer thing. We're about to hear the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father, which art in heaven, that's a biblical prayer, but is meant to be prayed thinking about every single word and what it means and saying it sincerely to God. It's not supposed to be recited. It's supposed to be spoken with your mind in gear, not out of gear. Um, we already talked about that. Oh, there's so much here. Don't keep on babbling like pagans. They think they'll be heard because of their many words. Verse 8, do not be like them. Here it comes. Listen, for your father knows what you need 
before you ask him. We, my wife and I had a Bible study at our house in Rio Del Mar. It's near, it's south of Santa Cruz. Um, and it was only eight or 10 people. I, I was leading it. I had no idea what I was doing, but I was leading it. Uh, this is like 1982 or so. Anyway, we had a lady there and I won't say her name, um, but she, we would pray before Bible study. We would pray after. It was supposed to be something like seven to eight thirty. We'd go to eleven fifteen. This woman could pray for an hour and a half. And listen, I'm all for that. Jesus prayed all night. Okay, so I'm not getting down on long prayers. But this woman felt it was her job to inform God of all the details he didn't know. Lord Sylvia is still sick. Her her um her knee is all messed up and she'd go into the technical thing and we're thinking god already knows this move skip down sis you know your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask him you know what the logical question is for verse eight well if he knows why pray then why don't you just close your eyes and go you know what's going on and with me help me amen right listen it's communication with your father. It's more than asking for stuff. We'll get to the four ingredients that should be in every one of your prayers in a second. Um, but prayer is not for God's benefit to inform him that he's up there going, oh, can't, who has cancer? Peter, did you know that? He knows. Okay, but we are bringing our needs to him and laying them at his feet. It does something good for the person we're praying for. It does something good for us when we see God act and that we've given it to him. It is what a child does with his parents. Are you a parent? When your kids were little and they came to you, did you ever say, and if you did, don't feel bad because we all did it. I'm busy, not right now. God never says that. He loves when you and I come to him in prayer. Can you tell we're leading up to a whole section on prayer? Don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you pray. We're not informing God, but it's a humbling thing to pray. It's a faith builder. It animates our hope. It raises our soul from earth to heaven in a sense. Um, we share concerns. For fellowship, why do kids talk to parents? To get help, to give thanks. God loves when we pray. Um, in the Psalms, David pours his heart out. It's honest communication. Sometimes you know what it is. Where are you? That's what he prays. Read some of the Psalms. How long am I going to live through this? And do you hear me? Are you even there? Sometimes it's that. But a lot of times it's praise, it's prayer. I mean, it's, uh, well, let's do our little acronym now. Okay, how many of you have heard of the book of Acts? Can you spell Acts, A-C-T-S? Most of you that have been in this Bible study are rolling your eyes now because you've heard me say this 30 times. A-C-T-S is an acronym. It's the four ingredients that should be in every prayer. A, adoration. Don't rush into God's presence and go, give me this, give me that. Here's what I want. And I'll give you till Thursday at 2.30. First thing you do is praise him. Adoration. A for adoration. Just take time to thank God for who he is, what he's done, 
that he is ever uh, always present everywhere we are, that he loves you, that you've given me salvation. Lord, we give you praise for, just take time to praise God. Adoration, A. C, confession. Take time to, as much as you can. By the way, the Bible does not say confess your sins to a priest. You know what it says? Confess your sins to God and confess your sins one to another. Doesn't mean you go around announcing, guess what I did, but you find a brother or sister. If you're a woman, you find a sister that you can trust who is your confidant and she supports you and you her and you tell her, I really blew it last week. Let me tell you what happened. Anyway, A, adoration. Take time to praise and worship the God you're praying to. C, confession. Tell God that you're sorry for your sins, that you've turned from them. You know that they were sins. You're agreeing with them. The word confess means to agree with God that they were wrong. T, A-C-T, T, thanksgiving. We rush into God's presence with our little laundry list of what we want him to do. Sometimes you just got to take time to say, thank you for fill in the blanks. And there's a lot. I guarantee you, every one of you has something or one, two, three things that you're kind of concerned about, worried about, in pain about, right? Bummers in your life. I guarantee you, the blessings outweigh those by a factor of a thousand, if you think about it. When our kids were little, we would tuck them into bed, read them a story, pray with them, sometimes sing them a lullaby or something, tell, make up a story, sometimes I did. And then when we prayed, we would have them, I always had the kids thank God for something. But the rule was you can't repeat. Thank you for my mom. Thank you for my dad. Okay, you said that last week, honey. Think of something else. So thank you for our house. Thank you that we have food. But after a while, you know, years go by, they're running out of stuff to thank God for. So we would get, thank you that I have knees. I thought, no kidding. If my legs didn't bend, there's a lot of things I couldn't do. Thank you for each of my toes, God. It was lovely. Thank God for stuff. Every good and perfect gift, James says, comes down from heaven, from the Father of lights, in whom there's no shadow of, of turning, that he never changes. Okay, adoration, A, C, confession, T, thanksgiving. Thank him for answered prayers. Thank him that you can see and hear and that you have life in your body and you've lasted this long. Some of you, I'm shocked. Anyway, <laughs> what's the S then, Joe? Supplication. A general word, it just means praying about stuff. I'm praying for this person. He needs a job. That person, you heard me pray for people that are ill, people that are having mental issues, people that um, all kinds of different things. It's okay to pray for those things. Does a father want to hear those concerns? Absolutely. But if you're a worrier like me, picture yourself leaving that concern at Jesus's feet and then walking away from it. You know what we do? Here it is, Jesus. I'm giving it to you, this whole situation. And then I, I'm as guilty as anybody. Pick it up and worry about it for the next two weeks. And God's going, I thought you gave me that. Well, I did, but, I, you know, I thought I could help you. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Can you pray for yourself? Of course. Okay. 
Um, it might surprise you to learn. Yeah, we have time. I'm going to shock some of you that unbelievers' prayers are not heard. What did you say? John 9, 31. Now we know that God hears not, does not hear sinners. But if any man is a worshiper of God and does his will, him he hears. Now there's one exception, may I say. Here's an, un we'll make it Harold over here again. Harold is an unbeliever, okay? He's a pagan, he's not a Christian. That verse says his prayers are not heard. By the way, Proverbs 15, 29 says, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. You see the difference? The exception to the rule for Harold, who's an unbeliever is, if Harold is at the end of his rope and says, God, I don't know if you're real, but friends of mine have been witnessing to me about Jesus. If you're real, would you show me? Would you come into my life and help me? God hears that prayer. It could be argued, well, he's no longer an unbeliever if he's praying that way, but that's the only one. I wanted to mention that. God does not hear the prayers of some believers. Okay, now you're stepping on some toes. Uh, Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard iniquity, sin, in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Don't shoot the messenger. Some of you are giving me dirty looks. It's true. Uh, let's see. Are we moving on? Yeah, we talked about that. Prayer is simply conversation with God. There's times when you sit down or lay down to go to bed and pray. My wife and I pray holding hands in bed every night. Sometimes shorter than others, but we do it. Okay. There's other, we pray before every meal as well, but we pray sometimes throughout the day. We hear of, oh, so-and-so, what happened? Let's pray right now for him and we'll pray. But all day long, you can be praying. Somebody, God puts somebody in your mind. There's a reason. I don't know why, but I just thought of Doreen. Lord, I lift Doreen up to you. Whatever she's doing, I pray you'd watch over her, protect her, that kind of thing. Okay. <laughs> Verse 9, we come now to the Lord's Prayer, which is a misnomer. That means it's a wrong name. It's not really the Lord's Prayer. John 17 is the Lord's Prayer where John records we get to be eavesdropping on Jesus when he prays to the Father. It's an amazing thing. We're not here to study that, so we won't go there. This is actually the disciples' prayer, the believers' prayer, right? I want you to notice verse 9. It says, this then is how, not what, you should pray. It doesn't mean you better stay with these 62 words or whatever never number it is. It means this is a template or a model. Pray along these lines. Are you saying you can't say the Our Father prayer? No, you can. In fact, it probably won't be tonight. It'll be next week. I have, uh, I'm going to read to you a extended Lord's Prayer. I tell people, if you pray the Lord's Prayer, stop and think about every word. Our Father, stop right there. Think about that. You're addressing the creator, the God of the universe, all-powerful, omnipresent, uh, all-knowing, 
and you're calling him father. It's an amazing thing. Notice that the pronouns are mostly plural. What do you mean? Our, my father, no, our father. Christianity is a community. Forgive me my, no, give me, no, give us this day. Forgive us as we, for we, us, our, it's plural. Christianity is a community. It's not all about me and my God. Okay, we digress. Um, this is all introduction, believe it or not. There are six petitions in the Lord's Prayer, which we'll call the Disciples' Prayer. Three are vertical. They're about God. Three are horizontal. They're about us on the earth. Uh, we already talked about that. Prayer is a way of life. It's like breathing. You don't say, well, it's noon. I'm going to breathe now. You breathe all day long. Learn to just talk to God. And I've, I've talked to people before and silently as I'm carrying on a conversation, I'm praying, please, how do I witness to this person, Lord? Will you bring the conversation to spiritual things so to make it easier for me? I don't know what to say. Pray without ceasing, Paul says in a couple of his epistles. Uh, some people pray the spare tire method. Do you know what that is? How many thought about your spare tire today? Nobody. You don't think about your spare tire until you need it, right? Some people pray only the emergency prayer because God, let's face it, is 911. When there's an emergency, that's who you go to. Otherwise, I never talk to God. Who, you know, come on. But if I need something, he's like a spiritual bellhop. I can ring the bell. He's like a spare tire. Oh no, I have a flat tire. I'll get the spare out. Oh no, I'm in trouble. I have a great need. I better pray. Oh Lord, we've come to you now. Don't pray spare tire prayer. James 4.3 says, talks about people's prayers not being answered because they pray with wrong motives. That's an interesting thing. We have to pray his will back to him. The central phrase I'm going to show you in the Lord's Prayer, you've heard me say this before as well, is thy kingdom, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth. We'll talk about the three ways that is meant. Okay, let's dive in. We won't get the whole Lord's Prayer done, but if you brought a sleeping bag, we could just keep going. Verse 9, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today or this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. Some translations have a, a, a little a sentence or two after that. We'll come to that. But let's go back to the beginning. This then is how you should pray. Let's start at the beginning. Our Father. Oh, I know what I forgot to mention. As we're going through the prayer, keep a mental tally. How many of these things that are brought up are physical versus how many of these things are actually spiritual things. You'll find it's almost all spiritual. Okay, our Father uh, who is in heaven, or 
who art in heaven. That's the first thing. So is God everyone's father? Yes and no. I sound like a politician, don't I? In a general sense, God is everyone's father. He's the creator of the human race. And as we saw, he has uh, given grace to all, common grace, rain, sunshine, a life on the earth, and friends that he put in your life, whether you're a believer or not. But this is a spiritual prayer for believers, Christians to pray, and they are the only ones that can call God father. Listen, in a spiritual sense, because they've been born again. And he's the father behind that birth, if you will, rebirth, John 3. Um, um, well, since we're doing shocking statements about uh, prayer and other stuff, let me throw this one at you. It's not about prayer. John 8, 42 to 44, Jesus says, spiritually speaking, that there's another father. Listen. In fact, let's turn there. John 8, 42 to 44. We're running out of time because the teacher is kind of a babbler. John 8, 42. He's talking to the, to the Pharisees who are a bunch of phonies who don't believe in him. John 8, 42. Jesus said to them, listen to this. If God were your father, you would love me. How can you tell if God is somebody's father? They love Jesus right? If God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. Verse, here it comes, 44. You belong to your father, the what? The devil. Unbelievers have another spiritual father. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He's a liar and the father of lies. Because I tell the truth, you don't believe. The point of all that is, if God were your father, you'd love me. Who is this prayer addressed to? God the Father. Who's praying the prayer? A believer in the Lord Jesus. Who loves Jesus? God is our father. He means father in every sense of the word. Yes, you have a biological father somewhere, deceased or not, mine is, maybe yours isn't, but he is your spiritual father. And the same things, and even more so, apply in the fatherhood of God that would apply to a human father. Fathers teach their kids. Fathers love their kids. They want to hear from them. They want the best for their kids. They love their kids. They also expect respect from their kids and obedience from their kids. So all those things are true when we talk about God being our father. Fathers protect and provide for their kids. Um, calling God your father makes you his daughter or son. It's an astounding thing. Is there anyone in this room that could right now pick up their phone and call the White House and talk to the president? Anybody? How about the Speaker of the House? Could anybody pick up their phone and get through, or would you get an operator nine levels down and you'd never, ever? You have a 24-hour 800 number, no charge, 
where you can talk to the God of the universe at any moment. It's an astounding thing. Trust me on this. I've never been there. But when you get to heaven, you and I will find that you had the greatest gift of prayer and you used it far too little. It was, and I don't mean this in a destructive sense, but it was nuclear bomb power that you hardly ever really used the right way. Me too. Our Father, it's intimate. God is 15 times in the Old Testament, Father, but never the Father of someone individually, the way you and I call God Father. It's always, He's the Father of the Jews, Father of Israel, that kind of thing. So it, it's a little weird for a Jew to call God his father. Um, we already talked about that. Jesus always calls God while he's on the earth, father, except when on the cross. Because at the moment when he's bearing the guilt, the shame, the sin, all of that weight of the world's evil and sin, God, who cannot look on sin, has to turn away. And suddenly, instead of father this, father that, father, father, he says, what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the first verse of Psalm 22, which is written in the first person about somebody being crucified. Read it when you go home. Otherwise, he calls God Father. He is our loving Father. That ought to make you understand that you don't have to crawl on your hands and knees. We can come boldly to the throne. It's like crawling up into the, the lap of your dad if he was the king and saying, Daddy, can I talk to you for a minute? He says, of course, my child. Prayer is such a beautiful thing. Um, uh, we're out of time. All right. Next week, the Lord's Prayer, I promise. Will we get through it? Probably not, but we'll try. Um, anyway, let's pray and we'll get out of here. Father in heaven, thank you for the time we could spend in your word and what an honor to speak with you anytime, day or night. It's not a privilege I only have. We all have it because of your son, Jesus, who made a way for us to have a relationship with you, not only through prayer, but through the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. Lord, we love you and worship you. We thank you for every blessing you've given us. We pray you would teach us to be better prayers, those that pray without ceasing, those that are not hypocritical in their faith, that do things not for the applause of men, but for your gl glory and to obey and love in gratitude, the one who has given us all things. Bless our evening, Father, and bless each one here with increasing faith. Thank you for the time. We love you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. Very important. Those of you on Zoom, God bless. Thanks for being here. See you next time.